We're in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. If you remember how the scene played out where we left off in our study of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus crossed over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and there He was immediately encountering a man of many unclean spirits, and Jesus cast out those unclean spirits, but the response of the people in their fear was not an excitement to learn from Jesus or to uh, follow Him, but rather the city and the countryside tell Jesus to go away, to please leave. And Jesus then gets back in the boat in verse 21 and crosses back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he gets out of the boat, we see that there is a a thronging crowd of people and we are presented with a person that is very surprising who would come to Jesus at this moment. We're told the man's name is Jairus, but he is a ruler, a leader of the synagogue. And when you read the Gospels, you recognize that the leaders and rulers of the Jewish nation, the leaders of the synagogue, are always against Jesus. They are always resisting Him. And yet Jairus comes to Jesus. And it tells us that Jairus falls down at the feet of Jesus and begins to implore and beg Jesus. And he says to Jesus, I have a daughter who is at the point of death. Will you come back to my house and lay your hands on her so that she can be healed? I want you to consider the amazing faith that this ruler is showing. He doesn't care about what people think. He doesn't care what may happen in the synagogue. He doesn't care about the Jewish leaders. He has a crisis. He has a daughter that later the account will tell us that she is 12 years old. She is about to die. And the only thing that can rescue this girl is Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and says... You can lay your hands on her and heal her. Great faith. She's about to die, but if you just came to my house and touched her, you could make her well. And wonderfully, you notice that Jesus accepts, it says in verse 24, and he went with him. And verse 25 says that there's a great crowd going going along. And I think it's important to just visualize this scene that it's not just Jesus and Jairus by themselves walking to His house, but it is a huge crowd. And the text says thronging about and pushing about. And imagine the scene of all the people as they are around Jesus, as Jesus and Jairus are walking to Jairus' house. And we're told then that there is a little bit of an interruption in the scene. We're told there that there is a woman who has a condition. She has had a flow, a discharge of blood for 12 years. And according to Leviticus 15, this makes her unclean. For 12 years she has been unclean. And the text tells us even more. It tells us 
that she has gone to the doctors and she has spent every bit of money that she has and they have not been able to cure her. They have not been able to help her. In fact, she's only gotten worse. Money spent, doctors no help. She is helpless and she has been hopeless for 12 straight years. And she has an idea now that she knows that Jesus is in town. What she says in her mind to herself is if I could just simply touch the clothing of Jesus, I would be healed. All that I need to do is be able to reach my hand in there and touch Jesus' garment and I would be healed. Notice the amazing faith of what she perceives. If I could just somehow touch him. Consider what her mission is. Her mission is not to try to approach Jesus and to try to talk to him. Not to ask for something great. With this thronging crowd that is all around Jesus pressing upon him. As they are slowly walking to Jairus' house. Her one simple idea is to simply be part of the crowd. Reach a hand in, touch the garment and slip out slowly and go. And that's what she does. With the crowd all around him. She reaches in and touches his garment and the text tells us immediately she felt herself be healed. Immediately the blood dries up. Immediately she is made well. And you can imagine as she's slipping back out of the crowd, Jesus just stops and says to the crowd, who touched me? It just stops. And he's just looking around. Who touched me? The disciples are incredulous. The disciples look at Jesus and say, you see the crowd all around you. You see the people who are thronging against you. Who touched you? Everybody is touching you. Everybody is bumping into you. Of course you're being touched. Why would you ask the question, who touched me? But the text tells us something that Jesus perceived that power had gone out of him. A mind-blowing statement right there. (laughs) Perceiving that power went out of him. He stops the parade, stops the processional, stops the crowd, and turns and says, who touched me? And just imagine just the silence as everybody's waiting. And the disciples are saying, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. And yet Jesus stands still. And we're told then that the woman with great fear comes in trembling and falls at the feet of Jesus and explains everything. You can imagine her saying, I, I knew that you could heal me. I've had this flow of blood for 12 years and none of the doctors could help and I've spent all of my money and nobody could heal me, but I knew that if I could just touch your clothes, you'd be able to heal me. And imagine why she's afraid. She's unclean. You should not be touching the teacher. You should not be touching him. But notice Jesus' response in verse 34. He said to her, 
daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Don't be afraid. Go in faith. Go in peace. You are healed. And imagine the joy that that woman is experiencing at that moment, that she is healed of this disease that has afflicted her for 12 years. And Mark is recording for us something that he's shown us before and will show us again in this very scene. That rather than Jesus becoming unclean by the touch of the woman, the woman becomes clean by touching Jesus. That Jesus is greater than the unclean, is greater than the impurity, and that the touch does not defile Him, but that He cleanses all who come. You can imagine the joy, the crowd all around this healing. But you might have forgotten as you read at this point what this whole event was about. And you'll notice in verse 35, while Jesus is still talking to this woman to be healed of her uncleanness, a messenger comes up to Jairus. You can imagine this messenger touching Jairus' shoulder. Master, I've got something to tell you. The messenger tells him, not bother the teacher anymore. Your girl is dead. It's too late. Perhaps the worst words of the medical profession. It's too late. There's nothing that can be done. And just imagine that crushing news reach into Jairus at that moment. We were on the way to get her healed. We were moments away from saving my daughter. And now a messenger comes and says, You didn't make it seem enough. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. She's already dead. The text tells us that Jesus overhears this. And simply tells him, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. What is Jairus going to do at that moment? What would you do at that moment? Because Jairus is struck with an interesting and difficult choice. She's dead. It's too late. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Will you send Jesus away and say, it is too late. You shouldn't have stopped for this woman. For 12 years she had the flow of blood. She could have waited 30 more minutes or an hour. But look what you've done. You should have hurried up, but you didn't. Or will you believe that Jesus can even solve that problem? I think with great amazement as we look at this event, Jairus continues to take Jesus with him. 
Did Jairus not send Jesus away and say, well, it was too late. We had our chance. What was the matter with you? Why didn't you hurry up? Jairus and Jesus continue to go together. But you will notice something fascinating. Jesus sends this thronging crowd away. Before he's going to go on with Jairus, sends this big thronging crowd away. In fact, he sends his own disciples away except for Peter, James, and John. So it's going to be them three and Jesus and Jairus. And the five of them are now going to walk together the rest of the way to Jairus' house. And as they approach Jairus' house, there is a commotion. There is a bunch of noise going on. Now for us, when it comes to funeral scenes, we are quite the opposite. Noise is not appropriate. Solemnness and quietness is what is appropriate to our culture. That would be inappropriate in ancient Near Eastern culture. In ancient Near Eastern culture, you had mourners and wailers who made noise when the family member died. In fact, the Mishnah says for us, which are the writings of the Jewish leaders, they wrote, Even the poorest of Israel do not hire less than two flute players and one wailing woman. Even if you are the poorest, you hired three people, two flute players and a wailing woman, to mourn and cry and make noise for the death that has happened. And that's what you see as the text even calls it a commotion. They are all making noise and wailing and wailing. And as Jesus approaches the house, He says to this mass of mourners and wailers, Why are you mourning and wailing? She's not dead. She's asleep. You guys have it all wrong? She's not dead. And it says that that group of mourners just laughed at it. You can imagine the derision. Huh. We know how to take a pulse, Jesus. <laughs> Asleep. We tried that. We, we tried shaking her. We tried reviving her. Uh, you're, you're a fool. She's dead. He sends out the mourners. Gets them out of the house. And goes into the little girl. And notice, says there, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And the girl gets up, walks around, and is completely healed. Just like in the prior scene, remember, touching a dead body is an uncleanness. And rather than Jesus being made unclean by touching the dead body, He touches the dead body and the dead body comes to life. And please visualize the power. Jesus is talking to a dead body and the dead body responded. Do not miss the power of His words to simply say to a dead body, get up. And up she comes. This image that Mark has for us relates to what we read earlier this morning in the Scripture reading from Isaiah 57 and verse 14. Listen to Isaiah's words about the hope of the future to come. 
Isaiah 57, verse 14, it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. You know, think about God saying Here's what God of eternity, the high and holy one says. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Think about what God is saying. I've seen the ways of Israel. I know this people. They continue to sin. They continue to rebel. They continue to backslide. Verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways. What do you think God would say right after that? I've seen his ways, and I'm going to judge him. That's what he says. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to those who are near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to bring peace. Jesus has come to bring healing. Jesus has come to bring wholeness to the people of God. That this is what God is symbolizing here by doing these miracles. We've talked many times that the miracles are not just simply miracles that you would go, oh, wow, neat, he did a miracle. It's far bigger than that. That here is Jesus who has come to reverse the curse, to take away the people's uncleanness, to take away their impurity, and most important, to bring life to the dead. That's what He's come to do. And these two miracles reveal it. That to those who are impure and unclean, Jesus has come to heal that and remove impurity and to remove uncleanness. To those who are dead and separated and apart from God, He has come to bring life. And He can make people whole. Now I want us to just consider in the few moments that we have left what is needed for us to experience this reversal. To experience the removal of our uncleanness. to This life to dead bodies. To bring us the life that we need. What can we do? What is asked of us? So that we can enjoy this cleansing and to enjoy life. And I would like for you to think about what is told to us. First, regarding the woman with the flow of blood. And as she comes to Jesus... What exactly does she need? You notice that Jesus simply says, it is your faith that has made you well. And when it comes to Jairus, what is told of him? What does he need? 
Don't fear. Only believe. Friends, I want us to be struck by the fact that what Jesus does not do is deal with Jairus and go, okay, now do you think you're righteous enough for me to come to your house? Would you give me your resume of good deeds? And if you are good enough, maybe I will come and heal you. That's not the picture, is it? The prerequisite is very simple. Do you have great faith in who I am? Do you believe that I can heal you of your uncleanness? Do you believe that I can give you life to your dead body? That's what you need to believe. And that is the need of faith. What we are reading about is a simple yet great faith displayed in this woman and in this man. If this woman would just think, you know, all I would need to do is touch Jesus and I'm good. I'll be healed. That this man, Jairus, thinks first, all that he needs to do is come touch my girl and she'll be healed even though she's sick to the point of death. And then when it is found that she has already died, believes that Jesus can still do something and brings Jesus to his house, that he believes in what Jesus can do. I want to ask the question, where does that faith come from? Where does that kind of faith come from? I submit to you that what we learn in this text is that faith comes from realizing that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Did you notice that in both of these people? The woman has tried everything for 12 years. Doctor, she's out of money, no help. They've made it worse. What do I have to lose? And I have everything to gain. When it comes to Jairus' daughter and she's dead, what do I have to lose? And everything to gain. To state this another way, faith becomes what we need when we recognize that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Faith becomes what God intends for us to have when we begin to realize that we cannot save ourselves, that there is nothing we can do. That's the only way we're going to express this kind of full dependence on God. It is out of our desperation that we are able then to generate this kind of faith. This is what you see in both of them. And this is what we are supposed to recognize in ourselves is the same desperation, the same dire condition that, friends, we are unclean. That we are lost, that we are hopeless and we are helpless and there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. What do we suppose that we can do before God? Will we stand before God and say, well, I have all these good things and I'm not as bad as neighbor so-and-so, so that's why you need to heal me, right? Sometimes we can approach our journey with God and our service to God with that kind of mentality and not see our dire condition to not see that we are helpless 
and hopeless and lost. Faith is born when our desperation concerning our condition before God is recognized and fully grasped. If we are not desperate because of our sins, then we're never going to have the faith that Jesus calls us to have. It is not until we recognize our condition before God that we will be able to have the faith that's being depicted here as saving faith. I think it is important to just consider then, with that being the basis of faith, what stops us from that? What stops us from having that kind of great faith? What prevents us from having the faith that is being described here? And I submit to you for us today in 21st century American culture, the thing that hinders us from feeling the desperation that we ought to feel before God is our prosperity. That just like we see in Ezekiel and the prophets, we turn to our idols and depend upon them rather than on God. We have money to solve our problems. We have jobs and careers and possessions. We have comfort and ease. These will be the things to take away our pain. These will be the things that will help us and give us what we need. These will be the things that will save us from our troubles. And because we rely upon things like wealth and comfort and ease and job and family and whatever it is, we no longer feel the desperate condition that we have before God. We allow these idols to trick us into not seeing our true condition. The only way for us to have this kind of faith is to be desperate for rescue. To see the dire condition. It was just a few weeks ago you might have caught in the news the big news about this soccer team that was stuck in... Philippines, I think it was, or Thailand, somewhere over there. And coach and team, they're going through the caves. Heavy rainstorm happens, fills up a bunch of the caves. They can't get out. And they're talking about, how are we, what are we going to do? There's all these crevices, and it's going to be really tight in some places. And you can't do a scuba tank the whole time. You've got to take it off and be able to squeeze through this hole and put it back on again. It was a dire situation. It didn't look like there was any hope for that whatsoever. Why would you take the chance to go ahead and trust the guys, these divers who are coming in and instructing all these kids? Now, when we get to this point, you have to do this. And when you get to this point, you're going to need to do this. And you're going to have to hold your breath for a while through here. And then we'll put the mask back on you at this point. Why would you try that? It sounds terribly dangerous and risky. Because you have no other choice. Because the condition is dire and you are desperate. 
And when you're desperate and the condition is dire, then you'll put your trust in that and say, that's my only chance. That's what these two people are doing. That's what God is calling for us to do. Is to see that there is no other way to be clean and there is no other way to have life except by trusting in Jesus. It is not going to be through possessions and comfort and ease and bigger houses and better jobs and better families. That's not going to do it. Yet we use those things to trick us that our condition's not dire. You can imagine how foolish it would have been if those boys were in there and going, Oh no, we're fine. We'll just sit in these caves. No big deal. You know, who knows? We're quite content playing rock, paper, scissors, you know, in here. You'd be like, no, you don't understand your condition. And yet that's what we do. We do that spiritually all the time. Oh, we're fine. We got no problems. Look at my houses. Look at my jobs. Look, I get to sit on my couches. It's air conditioned. It's comfortable. We're all good. And we don't see the dire condition that we have before God. We don't see the problem that lies ahead. We don't see that we need rescue. We're sitting content in a place that's going to bring us death, unwilling to reach out in faith. We must be desperate for God. That's what these two people show, is they recognize they are out of options and this is the only one who can give us life. This is the only one who can give us healing. This is the only way that we will ever have our wounds healed, but is by coming to Jesus. And that leads then to basically my final point. Is to consider what the concept of faith really is. Faith is a really misused word. Usually when we talk about faith, we speak of it as like some kind of inner sense of certainty. You know, faith means I have no doubts, firmly believing in something. That's not how the Bible ever, ever depicts faith. Faith before God does not mean all of my doubts and all of my fears are subsided and therefore I can just act as Superman of faith and never have any concerns or questions. That is not the problem or the issue or the the concept of faith. I want us to think about when you consider all the people in the scriptures who are described as having faith, what are they doing? They're always acting in the face of those doubts. It's never that they have no fear or no doubt. It's that they respond and act in spite of the fear and in spite of the doubts. This woman is trembling in fear. But she's desperate enough to go and touch him. Fear is, does not mean you don't have faith. Not acting means you don't have faith. Don't let fear stop you from acting in faith, in believing in the Lord and wanting Him because we recognize the desperation of our condition and how dire our circumstances are before our God. Every declaration that you see in the Scriptures, by faith somebody acted. Right? Think about Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, and he'll say, did something. 
By faith, Sarah. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. You don't think those people were afraid? You don't think those people had concerns? Of course they did. But the thing is, you have faith when you act. Where does that faith come from? Twofold. As we've mentioned, we see our dire circumstances, we have the desperation, and we know that God is for us and with us. The thing that can get me through the fears and the doubts is I have no other option, and I know that God is for me. He's come to rescue. That's the whole idea of those poor kids in Thailand. You have no other option and the divers came to rescue. Are you afraid? You betcha. Let's go. And here we are before God, spiritually doomed. Do not allow the cares of the world to take away the dire condition that you have. And with faith then move before God and say, you have come to rescue, you have come to heal, you have come to save, and I will believe in you to do that. And that is the perspective now that Mark is giving us in this gospel. Those who will come to Jesus with only faith in their hands and nothing else. That's what Jesus is looking for. Jesus is not looking for people to say, here I am and I'm really good and I don't murder and I don't. Sermon on the Mount is so powerful when it begins with, blessed who are the poor in spirit. You know your condition before God that you are hopeless and helpless and you have nothing to give Him. Next slide. Blessed are those who are mourning over their sins. You see your dire condition. And you know you're doomed. And all that you can do is come before God with your empty hands. And say, I have nothing but to believe in you to rescue. And when we come from that position of throwing away the self-reliance, the self-righteousness, that we recognize the condition, we see how desperate we are, you will act in faith. You have no choice. You will do whatever he says. Listen, if I'm in that cave and the diver says, at this point do X, Y, and Z, and at this point one, two, three, and this one A, B, C, do you think I'm doing it? Oh, yes. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me, and I'm doing it. I don't care how crazy it sounds. I'm trusting you, and I'm going to do it. And I know taking my mask off at a certain point to squeeze through sounds ludicrous, but I better do it because I believe in you. That's the kind of faith God's calling for. Whatever He says, I will do. Because there's nothing in my hands to offer. Nothing I can do for myself. My condition is dire. So whatever you say, I'll do. That's the faith that Mark is presenting is what the faith of the disciple is, is that all that we can do is trust in God to rescue. All that we can do is act based on what he has told us to do, trusting in his salvation. If he says do this, I will do this. Whatever he says, we will do. And so if Jesus says, 
to follow Him with all of our heart, I'll follow Him with all my heart. Jesus says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm going to love the Lord my God and love my neighbor as myself. The Lord says, put off the old self and put off the new and turn away from a life of sin. And that's what I'm going to do. Whatever He tells us to do, that's what I have to do. That's what true faith is. And I want to ask you for, for you to consider your life this morning and consider where you're at in your walk with God. Have you been depending upon false things that you have lost the sense of the dire condition that we are in because of our sins? Have we made ourselves comfortable by the cares and the concerns and the things of the world and forgotten that the only one who can rescue, the only one who can heal, the only one who can cleanse, and the only one who can give life is Jesus? There's nobody else. There is no other help and there is no other hope. We are like this woman. The more we try to find help in other places, the more we're hurt and the more we're out. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is what you must believe you need and that He is the only thing you need. Turn away from sin. Turn to Him with hands empty. I have nothing, but I will follow you wherever you go. I will do whatever you say. Wherever you go, I will go. Will you come to Him now while we stand and while we sing?